We are, once again, uh, honored and looking forward to being blessed by our friend Robin Waver, uh coming to bring God's Word to us this morning. So if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out, and you can open up to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Have uh, Kelly, I thought I saw Kelly come in. There she is. Uh, Kelly's going to come up and read for us from uh, Mark chapter 6, and then uh, Robin is going to bring a message from that. So, Kelly? Thank you. you want to stand? Yeah, the stand is good. And 30, is it chapter 6, 30 through 44? That's what he told you, then that's it. Okay. <laughs> you want to put that in there? Oh, I'll just hold it. Okay. Sorry, I didn't know what you meant. <laughs> I'm reading from Mark's Gospel in chapter 6 beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you again. Wasn't here all that long ago, I don't think. But I always enjoy coming to Mount Airy, to Christ Church of Mount Airy. So grateful for Matt and for you all. And um, I'm very honored to be able to come and bring to you a, a message from, from God's Word. This, of course, is a, a very familiar story uh, to anyone who has read the Gospels, and that's because this is the only miracle story that is reported in each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only one. 
It had great significance for the early church, and it has significance for us today. And I've actually been struggling a little bit with um, uh, what I'm about to do. Um, I'm actually going to read it again. Not because there's any deficiency in Kelly's reading. It was, it was wonderful. <laughs> but um, I've been marinating in this passage of Scripture for probably the last six weeks. And I've read it over and over again. And I've written it out over and over it again. And I've looked at it in uh, the Greek. And, um, and I read it over again a couple times this morning. And every time I read it, I see a little bit more. And so I know how much I benefit from the mere reading of God's Word and not to tempt you uh, by reading it again. Think, well, wait a minute, we already did that. But for your benefit, probably the most important thing that we do today, apart from expressing our praise to God, is attending to God's Word. So if you will indulge me, I'd like to read this one more time, and if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to follow along, because this is the Word of God. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot, ran where? To the place where they anticipated Jesus was going. They ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things and when it grew late the disciples came to him and said this is a desolate place and the hour is now late send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat but he answered them you give them something to eat and they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate of the loaves were five thousand men 
Now, as you know, context is very important in our understanding of God's Word. So this account begins with Mark telling us that the apostles had just returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Because earlier in the chapter, Jesus had sent them out two by two to minister. And they went out among the people proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming that men should repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. Now that's what Jesus did in the beginning of his ministry, and that's what John the Baptist did in the beginning of his ministry. Besides doing that, Jesus had given them authority to heal, authority over unclean spirits, and so in addition to teaching and proclaiming, they cast out demons and they healed sick people. And now they had returned and were reporting back to Jesus what had taken place. But something else had happened in regard to the context here that's important for us to note. Just before we read this passage of Scripture, we have the story of the death of John the Baptist. That occurs just before this. So Jesus sent them out two by two to minister. Then we have the story of John the Baptist who was beheaded because of a foolish vow made by a foolish king. And Mark doesn't tell us this, but after John was beheaded, John's disciples came and took up his body and buried it and then went and reported the fact of his death to Jesus. Mark doesn't report that. The other Gospels do. And then begins our passage today about the feeding of the 5,000. So, as our story begins, Jesus had just been told that John the Baptist was dead. Now, how must Jesus have felt? John, you know, was actually his cousin. And if there was one person in the world, in the whole world, who had any idea of who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do, it was John the Baptist. I mean, Mary had a lot of insight, but John the Baptist, who wasn't just a prophet, but was more than a prophet, was the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus eulogized him as such. That John the Baptist had just been killed. But you know, John the Baptist, who knew a lot about Jesus, he, even he, wasn't entirely clear on what Jesus had come to do. You remember the story about John the Baptist? While he was in prison, he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus this question, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Do you remember that? John was in prison before he was beheaded, he sent his disciples. His disciples went to Jesus and asked the question on behalf of John, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Because John was the forerunner of the Messiah, and he was sure that that was Jesus, but then he had some questions. Because Jesus wasn't doing what John thought he would do. John thought that Jesus would come as the great king, political deliverer Messiah a king who would come after the order of King David the messianic prototype 
And he would usher in the kingdom of God with all the power and the authority that the Jews were looking for at that time. And John is sitting in prison and wondering, why am I sitting here when the Messiah has come? And so he sent his disciples, are, are you really the one who is to come? This isn't working out the way I thought it would. And Jesus' answer was simply this. You go and tell John that the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended in me. You see, Jesus had not come in the way that John thought he was going to come. And so, in some sense, we'd have to say Jesus was a disappointment to John the Baptist. In other words, John had his doubts about Jesus. How about you? Have you ever had any doubts about Jesus that he's not delivering maybe the way you thought he would? Have you ever had any doubts or questions? Is this really what's true? I mean, I believe in this Jesus, but I've never seen him. We sing to him, but I only talk to him in prayer, and I only know him by faith, and Sometimes it seems to be working, but sometimes things seem to be falling apart, and I wonder, is he the real deal? I've got some reassurance for you. Even John the Baptist had doubts at times. So if you've had your doubts, if you've had your questions, you're in very good company. It's not wrong to have questions. But when you have those questions, you need to take them to the right place. And believe me, my friends, our Heavenly Father knows the difference between sincere, honest questioning and cynical distrust and unbelief. And if your heart is the heart of one who wants to believe and wants to obey, but you still have questions or doubts or things that can trouble you, you're in good company. John the Baptist was there also. But John came to Jesus. Well, he didn't come himself. He sent his disciples because it wasn't working out the way he thought. Why those questions? Again, he expected Jesus to come as a political king deliverer who would usher in the kingdom of God because the kingdom was at hand. You see, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God had indeed come, but it hadn't come in its fullness. The kingdom of God came with the coming of Jesus because Jesus himself said, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what's this thing, the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is that realm where God is in absolute authority. Well, he is in absolute authority. However, when we look around, we don't really see that, do we? Jesus actually, is, his coming is in two phases. He comes first as the suffering servant to die for sins. He will come again at the end of the age, which could even be today. And when he comes again, he will come on the clouds with his holy angels to usher in the final state, to bring judgment. And the kingdom of God at that point will come in its fullness. Now, you've heard me, I think, say things like this before, but I have a quote from uh, Scott Redd. Scott's the president of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington. He's a friend, and he's a, uh, an excellent theologian, wrote a wonderful book called The Wholeness Imperative, and I lifted this quote out of it. I think this expresses what I'm trying to say here. 
Scott Red writes, Jesus understood the messianic expectations of the Jewish people of his day. Like the people of any time period, they had a hard time seeing past their own immediate political and cultural realities. He knew, Jesus knew he was the true Messiah. He knew he was the great king deliverer, but not the sort of deliverer they anticipated. His objective was not to rule a small plot of real estate on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. His enemies were not Roman soldiers or corrupt local governors. He had bigger fish to fry. He was about the work of overthrowing the enemy trifecta of the human race, Satan, sin, and death. Notice that. His enemies were not Roman soldiers. His enemies were not local corrupt governors like Pilate. He had bigger fish to fry, fish like Satan, sin, and death. We can easily get caught up in the political and cultural issues of our day. They are important. I'm not saying they're not. But they are not more important than those things that Jesus came to deal with. This was his mission, to deal with Satan, sin, and death through dying on the cross. Jesus understood his mission, his training, and deploying of disciples was the matter at hand. This miracle, my friends, has to do with the training of Jesus' disciples. Let me say that again. That's the focus of this miracle. It's the training of Jesus' disciples. Uh, So, while Jesus must have been very sad personally at John's death, uh, the passage here doesn't tell us anything about that. In our text, as it begins, Jesus' concern is not for John, but it's for his disciples. They came back. They returned, they told him all that they'd done, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Why? Because many people were coming and going so that they did not have leisure even to eat. Uh, This was a time of, uh, these these were the go-go days of Jesus' ministry, and, and people were coming from all around, and thousands gathered, and he performed miracles, and he taught the crowds, and the crowds kept coming, because the more that you met the human need, the more the human need kept coming, and it was coming, not just to him, but to the disciples, and they had no leisure, he was concerned for them, so he said, come away to a desolate place by yourselves. And so they determined that they were going to go around the lake to a place that was desolate. That word occurs three times, desolate, desolate. It's the standard word for desert. And it, what it means is not a wilderness so much as a solitary place. Let's get away from the people because they were being peopled. Have you ever been peopled? Any young mothers here? that can't go to the bathroom without having little hands appear under the door? Uh, Anybody here people to the point where you just, I need a little time by myself uh, to be people. One of the occupational hazards of pastoral ministry 
And it's not just true for pastors, but for anybody that cares for other people. If you are to any degree effective in ministering to the needs of people, they will come. And sometimes, for those who don't know how to say no, it can get overwhelming. And so it's possible to get peopled. You can overdo it. You can open the door of your heart to the point where you're in over your head and before you know it, you've given yourself so much to ministry that urgent things crowd out the important and maybe you start actually neglecting your family, neglecting your husband or your wife or your children or other things and people and because there's no end to human need. If you have something of value to give, other people will come and they'll keep on coming. But the shepherd is also himself a sheep. And when the shoemaker's shoes wear out, that's a problem. Well, that was what was happening here. So Jesus said, come away by yourselves to a desert place, to a solitary place. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he became very annoyed. Oh, wait a minute, that's not what it says. Yeah, he was really irritated. No, it doesn't say that either. Now when he saw them, he had compassion on them. And we're told why. It's because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now the focus of this miracle story is on the disciples. Talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But this phrase is key to the entire account. They were like sheep without a shepherd. It's not the first time that that proverbial statement is made. Actually, we encounter it first in the Bible, way back in the book of Numbers, when Moses is just about to pass off the scene and he prays to the Lord and he says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Moses was the leader of God's people at that time. He was an under-shepherd of the Lord, caring for and leading the people at that point. He is about to pass off the scene and he says, God, have mercy on the people. Provide for them so that they are not as sheep without a shepherd. And of course, that was fulfilled by Joshua, right? God has a concern that his people be cared for. Sheep that have no shepherd are a reason for great concern the plight of a sheep without a shepherd if you're a member of this church if you're a part of this church you have a shepherd an under shepherd you have a number of elders here and they have that task and you should be very grateful for them because although they're human and they're like you they do bear a special responsibility and have a blessing and an anointing from God to, to care for your souls and God will use them in that way if you avail yourself of that because, you see, God the Father cares for his people. Because he cares for his people, he sends his Son. God the Son cares for his people. So at this time in the history of the Bible, as Jesus, as we're reading today, 
uh, Jesus has compassion on these people and he ministers to them because he is a shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd and bishop overseer of their souls. Jesus is the great shepherd because unlike under shepherds, he will actually lay his life down and die for the sheep willingly. We know this from John's gospel that Jesus had authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He was completely in charge of his life and mission and he knew that part of that mission was that he would die for the people of God. He would die in their place and for their sin. And this is exactly what Jesus the Good Shepherd did. He demonstrated his love for us in that he gave the ultimate gift of his life to save them. The Father loved us so much that he did not withhold his only Son but gave him up. And he who gave him up for us all, how shall he not with, us, with him also freely give us all things? So if God's given us his son, if Jesus has given us his life, he's not going to hold back anything to care for us. But at this point in history, in, in type, uh, Jesus is, as a good shepherd, he is tending the flock. He is feeding the sheep. He is, begins by teaching them many things. So he feeds them metaphorically, and then he is going to feed them materially because we need actual material food, don't we? We don't need just spiritual care. Uh, we need food for our bodies as well. And you know, isn't the Lord good? He takes care of us. I think everybody here probably, you know, folks don't look like you've missed many meals. I say, no, I'm just kidding. He, he takes care of us. He feeds us. And he feeds us spiritually as well. So he's going to demonstrate now his care in the mundane matters of teaching and feeding. So when it grew late, the disciples came to him and they said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away. Were the disciples annoyed? I don't know. We're not told. But they say, send them away to the surrounding villages so they can get something to eat. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And then there's this back and forth. What, are we supposed to buy 200 denarii worth of bread? A denarii was a day's wage. 200 denarii is like two-thirds of a man's salary for the year. Were they being sarcastic when they said that? I don't know. We're not told. But Jesus, did he know what he was about to do? Absolutely he knew. But he's drawing them into ministry. He's drawing them into service. He's training them by this. He doesn't tell them in advance what he's going to do because this is a faith lesson that they need to learn. And Jesus in training his disciples is playing what we call the long game. He's not necessarily interested in immediate results, although he wants those, but he's planning for the future because he knows that in his immediate future he is going to die. And upon his death and resurrection and ascension, the mission is going to be in the hands of the disciples. 
And they will then set in motion a worldwide, centuries-long campaign to serve him in the making of further disciples, which is why you and I are here today. The reason that you and I are here today is because Jesus had the foresight to train disciples who after him would proclaim the gospel, would fulfill the great commission to make disciples of all nations, and so that mission and that message has gone around the world and down through the centuries to the point where you and I sit here today as followers of Jesus Christ. We're vitally connected to what was taking place here. We, right now, today, are his representative servants in the world. You're thinking, really? Me? Yeah, you. You and me. We're part of the advancement of the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ brings as he builds the church. As he extends the kingdom one disciple at a time. We're his representative servants at this point in redemptive history. So Christian service, Christian discipleship, the training of disciples, it's always going on. It's going on right now. You're, you're actually being trained by listening to the Word. Some of you are listening really well. Maybe some of you are a bit distracted. That's the way it goes. We're all like that. But you're here. You're listening. You're going to benefit to some extent. So the question is, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? And if you're a disciple, are you working at it at all? Are you giving yourself to it? If so, you're a servant. Now, listen, even at our very best, we are all unprofitable servants. But even to be an unprofitable servant of Jesus Christ is a great honor. A great honor. I want to say something as strongly as I can. It is a great honor to serve the Lord. It's not just an honor. It is a great honor. I want you to think about that. Because if you're in any doubt about what it means, what it means to serve the Lord, you have only to ask Him. And that is a prayer he will most definitely answer. He gives us all different gifts, different abilities, but one thing that unites us all as believers in Jesus Christ, we are his servants. question is whether we're going to give ourselves to that. Because you may be used by God to serve him in many and varied ways, and all of them have value. We don't necessarily do the same thing over the course of our ministries. I've been a Christian over 50 years and a pastor for most of that time, but I started out setting up chairs. That was a vital ministry. People need to sit when they hear the Word of God, I guess. Sometimes that service might not be exactly what you want. I remember when I first started out back in the 70s, I really wanted to serve the Lord. Lord, I'll do anything, whatever. And then I was approached to lead children's ministry. Children's ministry? I fancied myself a big folks minister, not a children's minister. 
But you know what? God gave me grace to humble myself and serve in children's ministry. And that turned out to be one of the greatest blessings. How wonderful. All right. I'm just making a point here, my friends. It is not just an honor to serve the Lord. It is a great honor. I mean, there's a lot of truth in that phrase. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And now, as an older man, I didn't say old, but, well, yeah, let me say it. As an old man, more and more, I realize this is a great... Sons and daughters, yeah, you're sons and daughters. I mean, you don't have to do anything to be a son and daughter. You get born into the family, right? But to be a servant, that's not lesser. If anything, that's a greater honor to be a son or a daughter, to be someone who actually serves the Lord because the Lord is the greatest master there ever was and ever will be. Okay, back to our story. Jesus asks them, he's drawn them in now, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Did it really matter how many loaves they had? I mean, in another chapter or two, we're going to see that Jesus feeds 4,000 with seven loaves. That's less people with more loaves. Did Jesus decrease in his power? No. Did it really matter how many loaves and fishes? No. The shepherd king is able to meet the needs of his people. The miracle dem demonstrates this. Well, anyway, they, they find out that they've got five loaves and two fish. And so then Jesus directs the crowd to sit down in an orderly fashion. And then he doesn't distribute the food. He has the disciples distribute the food. And so they do so. They're all... They all eat, they're all satisfied, and there's even leftovers. Now the interesting thing is in Mark's account that we just read, there is no indication that the crowd even knew that a miracle took place. You do get an indication, I would admit, from John's gospel that they knew something had happened. However, here, that's not Mark's point. Whether the crowd knew a miracle had taken place or not, he doesn't seem to care. Obviously, however, the disciples knew that a miracle had taken place because they needed to be trained. They needed to know that our Lord can do anything. And in the Gospel of Mark, that is a main thing. The main theme is Jesus is Lord. Because you have all these miracle stories that demonstrates Jesus' lordship over the elements, the winds and the waves. His lordship over Satan, he casts out demons. Lordship over sickness, he heals the sick. Lordship over death, he raises the dead. He also does something only God can do, forgive sins. Mark paints all these pictures with these little miracles to tell us something very important. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we need to read that, we need to hear that, because when we look around us, it might not seem like Jesus is Lord. Remember I talked about the political and the cultural issues of our day? Are you aware of them? Are you bothered by them? Do you read the news? I say, dare say, for most of us, we read the news too much because I see a lot of God's people freaking out. And you know what? The more I read the news and not my Bible, the more I tend to freak out. What the heaven is going on in our country? Are these matters important? 
Yes, they are. And to the extent that the Holy Spirit leads you to become involved in different ways, you should obey Him. But are those things most important? No, they are not. If they were, Jesus would have dealt with them at His first coming, or He would rush to come in today to deliver us out of this present evil age. But apparently he believes that what he's given us in the Word, in the Holy Spirit, in the fellowship of the saints, and in the mission that he's called us to, that we're going to be well enough equipped to carry on his mission right now in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. So, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is in control and that he as the good shepherd has compassion on his people and that he can and will provide for them and he wants his disciples to have the same heart so there's really a couple of things that I want to say to you today first of all the Lord is your shepherd and he can and he will provide for you he will teach you, he will feed you, he will care for you, he will not leave you as sheep without a shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. And the other thing is that God is in the business of training you so that you can be his hands and his feet and his voice in extending the message and the mission of the church. But before I close, I just want to uh, maybe point out something that's a little interesting. Uh, I've been amazed at some of the ways that people have stood on their heads to interpret this miracle because they don't believe in miracles. You know, there are those that come to the Bible. I'm not even sure why they bother coming to it, but they, they have this anti-supernatural presupposition that miracles can't happen. So this is my favorite interpretation of what was going on here. Just to give you an idea of how the world can think. You see, we know loaves and fishes can't be multiplied. So how did 5,000 actually get fed? Well, John's Gospel tells us there was a little boy who had the five loaves and the two fishes, right? And what happened was when Jesus said to the disciples, you give them something to eat, go find out what we have, that little boy unselfishly came forth with his five loaves and two fishes, and when the disciples saw that, they who had been hoarding their food were so shamed by his selfless example that they brought out the food that they were hoarding, and then one thing led to another, and all of the other people who were hoarding food brought theirs out, and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is that all of these selfish people became unselfish because of the example of the unselfish little boy. And that is the answer for the feeding of the 5,000. I thought, wow, that is very creative, the mind that thought that up. Unfortunately, it bears absolutely no resemblance to the text. Well, why do people do that? Because in their unbelief, they suppress the truth. We don't have to do that. We can actually believe that God who created the heavens and the earth can actually multiply loaves and fishes. If that's what's needed, he can do it. Jesus is in the business here of training his disciples. He wants them to know he is the good shepherd, that the good shepherd cares for the needs of his sheep. 
He also likes to let his disciples, his servants, in on what he's doing. So disciples or servants see things and understand things about the Lord that other people don't. And over time, their knowledge of their Lord and their knowledge of his ways enable them to continue to fulfill the mission that Jesus called them to. And again, that's the reason why we're here today. So, this miracle is an answer to the problem of being without a shepherd. And that metaphor is very telling. Now, in this, of course, Jesus has probably got in mind the beautiful psalm of David, Psalm 23. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. He lets me rest in meadows green and he leads me beside the quiet stream. He keeps on giving life to me and he helps me to do what honors him the most, even when walking through the dark valley of death. The valley of death, I will never be afraid for he is close beside me guarding guiding all the way he spreads a feast before me in the presence of my enemies he welcomes me as his special guest so now with blessing overflowing his goodness and unfailing kindness will be with me all of my days and afterward I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the Lord my shepherd. Is that the Lord your shepherd? In the middle of the night when you're frightened and you wake up, do you go to the Lord your shepherd? He's your refuge. He's your fortress. He's your strong tower. He's your deliverer. I have a friend at uh, Covenant Life Church who was working at a conference in Baltimore some years ago when he just keeled over. He had a cerebral hemorrhage. And when he woke up at Johns Hopkins a couple of days later, tubes were going in and out all over the place. And he said, I had two thoughts immediately. The first one was, Bob, you are in big trouble. And the second thought, he said, that followed close on its heels was, and the Lord is my shepherd. Now, you don't get, that's biblical thinking. You don't get there unless you've prepared in advance by reading about and meditating upon and praying and walking with the Lord your shepherd. But in your point of need, Hopefully it won't be anything like that. Will you be able to say, the Lord is my shepherd? Just one more thing as we close. It's the language of verse 41. It says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked to heaven and said, a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Those verbs, take, bless, broke, gave, those verb forms, they appear again later in the Gospel of Mark and they appear in the same order. 
And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Coincidence? No. My friends, Jesus was taken by God. He was blessed. He was broken. And he was given for you and me. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Jesus was taken and blessed and broken and given. Because we can't forget who our Savior is. We can't forget who our good shepherd is. We can't forget who our main discipler is. You, my friends, are Jesus' sons and daughters, but you're also his disciples. You're also his servants. I'd like you to think about that and remember, remember, it is a great honor to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the men and the women and the boys and the girls, even the very little ones who are part of this covenant community. Uh, we are those who are marked out by the fact that we are Christian believers, disciples of Jesus Christ. We have his mark upon us, the mark of the disciple. Oh, Lord, help us to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, to submit ourselves to the training of disciples. Lord, I pray that you would help the men to love their families as well as their Lord, the women to love their families as well as you, Lord, the children to love their parents, all, Lord, that are here, to engage in this wonderful service because to serve you is such a great honor. So, Lord, even though we are unprofitable servants and at our very best we've only done what was expected of us, still, to be an unprofitable servant is to be a servant after all. May your blessing be on this congregation in Jesus' name.